you know, if the Advent season teaches us to do anything, it teaches us to do two things. To remember and to wait. To remember and to wait. And what I mean is when December comes around, we are reminded to remember. We remember the visit by the angel Gabriel. We remember the faith of Mary, the shepherds in the field, the census. We remember the journey to Bethlehem, the Magi, the star in the east. We remember no room at the inn. And finally, we remember, of course, most importantly, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ himself. And these moments, these historical events are powerful and provocative and historical and and real. And we absolutely must remember these as foundational to our very faith. Without them, there is no Christianity. And yet, yet at the exact same time, it's not merely enough to just only remember. Nostalgia and sentimental feelings about the birth of Christ have their rightful place in the Christian life. And you see, what Advent also teaches us to do at the same time is also to wait. To wait. To wait in a fallen world for the completion of the plan. To wait for the sequel. Part two, when Jesus Christ returns and finishes what he began. To wait on the edge of our seats knowing that the world is His to take and the nations are His to rule. You understand the first arrival of Christ points us to the second. The manger, you understand, points us to the throne, the cross, to the crown. That dirty barn and that dumpy village points us to a future glorious kingdom when the God who was with us, Emmanuel, will once again be with us, ruling the nations from a throne in Jerusalem. Mark my words, that's exactly where human history is headed and that's exactly what Advent teaches us to do every single year, again and again and again. To remember and to wait. When the king will come and he will make all things be the way they ought to be. And that's exactly what we see in the text this morning. In other words, for Advent this year, instead of looking at the past, we're going to look at the future. Instead of dwelling on history, we're going to do eschatology as a church. Our Christmas meditation this year as a church is not the birth of Christ, nor even necessarily the death of Christ, but instead the second coming and, the, the second coming and kingdom of Jesus Christ when he brings Eden back to earth. When he lifts the curse and he breaks the spell And he restores to the planet the paradise which was lost. Because if you think about it, Christ as king is the essence of Christmas. That's the very point of the Christmas message, isn't it? We sing it every year. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. King of kings. Salvation brings, let loving hearts enthrone him. And a preview of the king is exactly what Isaiah gives us. And he does so again and again and again in his prophecy. And the reason why he does is because the times in which Isaiah lived were not too terribly different from our own. Which means from one perspective, the times in which he lived were bleak and utterly hopeless. I mean, if you only read the headlines in the Jerusalem Times, all you would get are various shades of gloom. I mean, these were bleak and dismal dismal days in Israel, and it was all their fault because of decades and decades of sin and disobedience. The The king of Judah, Ahaz, was a coward and a fool. Politics was a mess. The nation was in total disobedience. Sin and idolatry filled the land. Affection for Yahweh was at 32 degrees and falling. The king was on the brink of this political maneuver that had the potential of wiping out the entire country, which would bring all of God's promises to the people crashing to the ground. And yet, although bleak and dismal days were inevitable for the people of Judah, there was no stopping that train. It was inevitable. What was also inevitable was the glorious future kingdom of the Messiah who would bring paradise back 
to the earth and that king and his kingdom is exactly what Isaiah gives us and that's exactly what Christmas is all about and so let's go back to the past to learn about the future shall we let's go to a 2700 year old prophecy to get a glimpse of your future home and how the world will be reclaimed by the Lord Jesus Christ Without a doubt, the weirdest Christmas message you're about to hear, but it is the one that we most need to hear. Here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see from our text two riveting glimpses. Two riveting glimpses of the coming kingdom that you must remember to sustain your soul in a world of chaos. Two riveting glimpses of the coming kingdom that you must remember You must remember to wait for that will sustain your soul in a world of chaos. Riveting glimpse number one is this. Number one, the righteous king of the kingdom. The righteous king of the kingdom. Because from the beginning of God's plan, a king who ruled the earth, that was always God's design. That was always the plan. You remember God created man to rule and to exercise dominion. The man was the king, his bride was the queen, and their calling was to spread and fill the earth with God's glory by multiplying image bearers all over the face of the planet. But you remember the problem is that our first parents torpedoed the plan and sunk the human race into an ocean of sin and death, and without God's intervention would lead the entire human race into eternal ruin and destruction. And yet God did intervene, didn't he? At the crime scene of sin, just minutes after the sin of our first parents, God proclaims that in Genesis 3.15 that a descendant, an offspring, a redeemer would arise from the human race and he would crush the head of the serpent and he would single-handedly solve the dilemma of sin. But then we see in Genesis 49.10 he reappears in a prophecy that declares that he would be a king from the tribe of Judah and that all the nations of the earth would obey him. But then in 2 Samuel 7, what do we see? What do we see? Yes, yes, the Savior to come would come from the human race, of course. He would come from the people of Israel, absolutely. And yes, he would come from the tribe of Judah, but that's not all. Because in 2 Samuel 7, we see that in particular, he would come from the family line of David. There would emerge from David's line a descendant who would be a king and restore the planet to its original paradise-like conditions. And that is exactly what we see in Isaiah chapter 11. Look at verses 1 through 5. But a stem shall come forth from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And his delight will be in the fear of Yahweh. But he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. And he will not decide by what he hears with his ears. But rather he will judge the poor in righteousness. And he will decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be the belt around his waist. And faithfulness will be the belt around his loins. There he is. As the song says, Israel's strength and consolation, the hope of all the earth. This right here is the long-awaited King and Messiah, and as we're, about, as we're about to see, this can only be a description of Jesus Christ himself. And yet, I want you to notice there in the text five features of the King, five features of this King that make him worthy of our worship and allegiance. Five features of this king that make him worthy of our worship and allegiance. Feature number one, the royal lineage of the king. The royal lineage of the king. Look very carefully at verse one. But a stem shall come forth from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. You notice this ruler, this judge, this king to come would come from the stump and roots of Jesse. And that's profoundly significant. 
Because the name Jesse appears 44 times in the whole Bible, and every single time it only refers to one single person. There's only one Jesse in the Bible, and it is the father of King David himself. And you know why that matters. You know exactly why. Because 300 years before this moment, God made a promise to David, the son of Jesse, that one of his descendants would be a king. A king who would come and make things right in the world. Make all things be the way they were designed to be. And he describes him in Isaiah chapter 7. From the house of David, one would come forth and be born from a virgin. In chapter 9, he mentions him again. And Isaiah calls him wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. That he would sit on the throne of David and rule his kingdom. And here again, the king appears. And get a load of this. When Christ showed up, he had the audacity to call himself the son of David. Paul called him in Romans 1.3, the offspring of David. In Revelation 22.16, Christ himself says, I am the root and the offspring of David. And so here is Jesus Christ, depicted 700 years before he ever even showed up to the planet. And yet here in chapter 11, he does not die for sinners. But he takes the throne that's rightfully his, which means what this is here is a condensed miniature version of the second coming and kingdom of Christ. What this is, is the condensed Old Testament version of Revelation 19 and 20. And so don't you see, embedded in that cryptic phrase that maybe before this moment you didn't even care about, but embedded in that phrase, the stem that comes from the roots of Jesse, whether you know it or not, you are banking your entire lives on that title. You know why? Because what that title signifies is the faithfulness of God himself. God has made a promise. The king has come. He will come again. And when he does, paradise will be regained. And so whatever it is that you are facing at this moment, whatever affliction you are dealing with, whatever trouble is in your way, whatever opposition, whatever difficulty, pain, struggles are in your life, Jesus Christ will deliver you. He will deliver you. Either now, temporarily, or finally, forever in the future when he returns. But either way, you will suffer nothing in this life that won't finally be restored by the root of Jesse, Jesus Christ. Every trial, every difficulty, every pain, even our death will be reversed. And with resurrected, glorified bodies, we will reign with Christ in His invincible, sovereign kingdom. And what that does is free us. It frees us to fight sin, to suffer hardship, to be rejected, to fight materialism, and to proclaim the gospel no matter, no matter the cost of our lives. Because in the end, the root of Jesse will make it right. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory o'er the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Which brings us to the second feature of the king, number two, the redemptive irony of the king. The redemptive irony of the king. And what I mean is, everything about who Jesus Christ is is profoundly ironic. He just wasn't ever thought what you thought the savior of the world was going to be like. He just wasn't ever the kind of guy you'd pick out of a crowd on a list of candidates to be the Messiah. He was just never going to get a vote. And you see glimpses of that in the text because you notice, you notice that Isaiah calls him a stem and a branch. A stem and a branch. Now hold on a second. If you're going to use a tree analogy to describe the Messiah... Should you really call him a stem and a branch? I mean, why not a towering cedar? Why not a massive redwood? Why not a majestic oak that looms out of the forest? I mean, if grandeur and majesty of what is what you're going for, then stem and branch just aren't really that effective. And yet that's exactly the point. 
You see, the Messiah entered into the world humble and insignificant. Born in a barn, raised in a dumpy village. Chapter 53 says that he would have no form or majesty nor appearance that we would be attracted to him. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? They asked. I mean, there just wasn't anything about him on the surface that would lead you to believe that he was anything other than a nobody. And yet, get this, just in the chapter just before this, in chapter 10, Yahweh called Israel a forest. He called Israel a forest. The chapter just before this, this is, this is significant. And yet he also said that he was going to burn Israel to the ground in the fire of his wrath, that he would visit his people in judgment, that the nations would come and turn his people into a smoldering field of ash. And from all appearances, the point is from all appearances, it would look like it was over for the people of Israel. This is finished. We're done. And yet, what is that? What is that? Out of the charred stump of Jesse, a little stem comes forth. Out of Jesse's roots, a little branch would grow and grow and grow. Out of the ash comes a massive tree of towering splendor, bearing fruit. The point is he would rebuild the forest of Israel. He would save his people from their sins. He would make them as the sand of the sea. And every promise that God made to the people of Israel will be fulfilled. And so don't you see, Jesus still looks like a little branch in the eyes of the world. He still seems insignificant in the eyes of the world. Respected, maybe, maybe but not a sovereign king of infinite authority. And yet, do not be fooled. Don't trust what your eyes see. Don't trust your feelings, even though Yoda told us that's exactly what we should do. Do not trust your feelings because, because despite what it seems on the surface, the king from the roots of Jesse is ruling and reigning and governing everything that comes to pass. And one day he will go public with his glory at the second coming and he will establish a kingdom in which everything that is crooked will be made right. Do you believe that this morning? Which brings us to the third feature of the king, that make him worthy of our worship and allegiance. Number three, the resplendent powers of the king. The resplendent powers of the king. Recently, I watched a video panel. Some of the greatest scholars and theologians on the planet together in one room, some of whom I know personally. And as I watched these brilliant minds, six, seven guys in this room having this conversation together about some of the most complex issues of theology. It amazed me how freely and fluidly they spoke about these complex theological issues. As they spoke, they had no notes, they had no plan, they just spoke off the top of their head, off the cuff. And as they spoke, they seemed to draw from this endless warehouse of knowledge. I mean, they were so Fluent, these towering giants of theology were so fluent in the language of divinity, it was almost as if they spoke ballet with their words. It was incredible. And all of a sudden it dawned on me. These men who are some of the most brilliant theological minds on the planet, even if you could take all of them and combine them into one person, they still could not hold a candle to the infinite genius of Jesus Christ. And his infinite genius is exactly what we see. Look at verse 2. It says, And the spirit of Yahweh will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. See, notice what Isaiah tells us about the Messiah to come, that the Spirit of Yahweh would rest on him. You know what that is? That is code. 
That is code for saying that every single thing the king would say, think, or do would be empowered and executed by the sovereign power of the Holy Spirit. The sovereign, the Messiah, would not operate on merely human potential. He isn't just a really great man with a really high IQ. Rather, he is supernaturally endowed with the limitless capacity of God, the Holy Spirit. And this was true of his first coming, wasn't it? Luke 135, conceived in the womb by the power of the Spirit. Matthew chapter 4, he resisted temptation by the power of the Spirit. Matthew 12, 18, he preached his sermons by the power of the Spirit. Matthew 12, 28, he did miracles by the power of the Spirit. Romans 8, 11, he raised himself from the dead by the power of the Spirit. And yet, when Jesus Christ returns to rule his global kingdom, every single thing he does will be done with the limitless power, the sovereign power and potential of God, the Holy Spirit himself. Look at his resume, verse 2. The the Spirit-given credentials to to rule the planet and reign as king. Look what he says. Isaiah says that he will have the spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. Again, you notice the text is clear. Every single one of those virtues on the list is prefaced with the word spirit. Spirit of wisdom. Spirit of counsel, spirit of strength. Which, which means that every single virtue and quality of Jesus Christ will be empowered and supplied by the infinite power of the Holy Spirit. Infinite wisdom, infinite knowledge, infinite counsel, infinite strength. The divine ability to make the exact right solution for the deepest dilemmas of life that mankind has never ever been able to solve, and yet Jesus Christ will solve them. And yet, isn't it interesting to you, the last virtue on the list, it says that the Messiah, the King to come, would have the fear of Yahweh. Jesus Christ, who is God, will fear God. That's right. And the reason why that matters is because that is the highest virtue that any leader could possibly have. This is what Adam failed to do. This is what Obama and Trump failed to do. And the biggest problem with our current president is that he does not tremble before Yahweh as the treasure of his soul. But you see, when the high king comes to reign, that is exactly what he will do. And that will make him the perfect king. Every command, every order, every law, every rule, every mandate from the king will flow from the perfect fear that he has for his father. And that is the guarantee that his kingdom will be paradise on the earth. The chaos and the corruption and the lies and the deception will be over. So here's the question for your lives right now. I mean, you see these virtues and these attributes of Christ in the text. You see them. The wisdom, the understanding, the counsel, the strength, and the knowledge. And yet the question is, which of these attributes do you need for your life? Right this very moment. For what situations in your life right now do you need divinely given wisdom and understanding? For what scenarios in your life do you need the Lord's counsel and strength? Does sin, a particular sin in your life, give you evidence that you do not fear the Lord the way that you should? Because don't you see every single one of these virtues that Christ is and that you need for your life right now? They are available to you through the sacred text of Holy Scripture. Because it's true, Christ does not rule here physically now. And yet, He rules His people in and through His Word. He transforms His people in and through His Word. He is available to His people in and through His Word ready to mediate his wisdom and strength and counsel and power to you for every single issue that you could possibly face. And so I beg you, I beg you as your friend in the trenches with you, go to the text daily. 
Savor the text. Ponder the text. Get the text absorbed into the bloodstream of your soul because then you will find wisdom and power to deal with the most complex issues of the soul. Which brings us to the fourth feature of the king that makes him worthy of our worship and allegiance. Number four, the remarkable abilities of the king. The remarkable abilities of the king, because notice what the king is able and will do when he comes in his kingdom. Look at verses three and four. And his delight will be in the fear of Yahweh. But he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. And he will not decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and he will decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And, with the, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Notice the echo from verse 2. The end of verse 2 it tells, us that, tells us that he would have the fear of Yahweh. And here it says that his delight, his delight is in the fear of Yahweh. Literally the Hebrew has the idea of to smell with delight. And not only will he delight in Yahweh, not only will he find delight in the fear of Yahweh himself, but when he sees the people in his kingdom fearing Yahweh, it will fill him with delight. Which means the criteria of Christ for what makes a good citizen in his kingdom is not just that you pay your taxes or that you wave an American flag, but that you tremble before the glory of his Father. But did you notice in verses 3 and 4, the same two words appear. Namely, judge and decide. Did you see that in the text? Judge and decide. When he arrives, verse 3, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. But verse 4, he will judge the poor in righteousness. Verse 3, he will not decide based on what he hears with his ears. But verse 4, he will decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And the question is, what does that mean? What does it mean that when he judges, he won't do so based off what he sees with his eyes. What, what does it mean that he will make decisions, but that he will not do so based off what he hears with his ears? What does this mean? It means he is not like us. He's not limited by sense perception what he sees on the surface. Why? Because he's God. And as God, all things are open and laid bare to His eyes. And every decision that He will make for His kingdom, He will make with perfect, infinite knowledge of everything forever. He knows it all. He sees it all. He rules it all. Which means when the King arrives, He will have the exact right solution to every dilemma of history. This is the king we have been waiting for. And you know, you know that every president that's ever been elected, they have a plan for how they're going to change the United States. Right? At least that's what they're supposed to have. And they have this plan. They always have a plan. A plan for change. A plan for action. Here's what's wrong with America. And by golly, here's how I'm going to change America. Well, guess what? Isaiah says that the Messiah to come, that he also has a plan. And he doesn't just have a plan for one country, but even to change the entire planet. And it is nothing less than the reversal of everything that's crooked and backwards in the world. Look at verse 4. But he will judge the poor with righteousness. And he will decide with equity or fairness or uprightness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. There's the plan. There's the plan for change. And it comes in two parts. Part one. Notice when he comes, it says that he will judge the poor with righteousness and he will decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And the funny thing about that word judge, it's not what you think. It's better than you think. And in fact, that word judge, to be totally honest, just doesn't do the word justice because that word in the Hebrew, mishpat, literally has the idea of bringing order out of chaos. 
It is to take something backwards and twisted and chaotic, like our entire planet, for instance, and bring it to a place of complete order and equilibrium. It is to make all things be the way they were designed to be, which is exactly what Jesus Christ is going to do when He comes. He will judge the poor with righteousness. And yet we have to be very careful here. Because when it talks about the poor and, and, and the afflicted, it doesn't, listen very carefully, it doesn't merely mean those of low income and economic status in itself. Rather, poor and afflicted mean those who are poor and afflicted precisely because of their allegiance to Yahweh. Because you understand it's always been politically expedient to oppress God's people and deprive them of justice. In a world of darkness ruled by Satan, it's always been good politics to persecute the church and punish them with affliction. And mark my words, that is coming for us. And yet you can tell the politics of David's kingdom will be radically different. Gone will be the days of oppression and corruption. Over will be the days of murder and mayhem. When he arrives, the sovereign Lord and King will break the guillotine and burn down the gallows that that, uh, the enemies have used to destroy our comrades. Which is why the book of Revelation makes such a huge deal about the martyrs. Their blood cries out from the ground. And yet Jesus Christ will avenge them. Which leads to part two of his plan for global change. Look at verse four. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Because you know what they say. They say that you should never bring a knife to a gunfight. But when you go to war against the king, it doesn't matter what you bring to the fight because what you bring, regardless of what it is, you're going to lose. And you're going to lose everything. Because you notice when the high king comes to plant his flag, to plant his banner on the earth, you notice that he's coming for conflict. He's coming for combat. He will be a warrior king who will slaughter the forces of evil on the earth. When he comes, it will be a holocaust against the powers of evil. It will be war. And yet you notice that the weapons that he wields, he will not wield with his hand, but they're weapons that come out of his mouth. Notice the parallels in the text. Strike the earth, slay the wicked. Rod of his mouth, breath of his lips which means even the words of his mouth will have death-dealing power. In the beginning, he spoke men into existence at creation, but when he comes again, he will speak them out of existence. Because when armies go to war, they arm themselves with bombs and tanks and weapons and fighter jets and all of the -the state-of-the-art technology, but when the king goes to war, all he needs to do is speak. Revelation 19.15 says that when he comes a second time to build his kingdom, that he will come with a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth to strike down the nations. Which puts an interesting spin on the lyrics we sing every year, doesn't it? Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king with a sword in his mouth. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. He rules the world with truth and grace. So little flock, I just need you. We we need to preach this. We need to preach this. The global justice at the end of the age must be a part of the gospel that we proclaim to unbelievers. It just has to. If we stop at forgiveness of individual personal sins, we have given a gospel that is woefully incomplete. The whole gospel includes a kingdom in which all will be made right when Jesus comes in sight. Which means we have the solution for the current train wreck of the world. 
and it is the global reign of Jesus Christ when he comes to rule at the end of the age because Christmas, you understand, isn't just a season, it is a sermon. And one that we must preach with power and authority. Which brings us finally to the fifth feature of the king that make him worthy of our worship and allegiance. Number five, the righteous character of the king. The righteous character of the king. Look finally at verse five. He says that righteousness will be the belt around his waist and faithfulness will be the belt around his loins. I think it's very interesting that the founding fathers knew, founding fathers of America knew that it was suicide to give all the powers to rule to one person, didn't they? They were rightly and incredibly suspicious of human nature, and so therefore they designed an ingenious system of checks and balances because they knew all too well that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And yet when God's own glorious king brings his kingdom at the end of the age, at the end of history, then, then, finally, it will be safe to have all power concentrated onto one person. And absolute power will not corrupt him because this king is absolutely incorruptible. Why? Because he is righteous. He is faithful. And those attributes, Isaiah says, are like a belt around his waist, which is an interesting metaphor, isn't it? Because the belt was the thing that held the outfit together. Everything else was tucked into the belt as the centerpiece of the uniform, which is just a fashionable, artistic way to say that everything the king does when he comes will be done with righteousness and faithfulness. Every law, every word, every rule, every mandate, every decree will be righteous and faithful and will flow from the springs of his infinite character. Here now is a king who is worthy of worship. Here now is a king who is worthy of our allegiance. Here now is a king who, is, who can and must be trusted. The question is, do you trust in this king? Do you trust in the high king? The root of Jesse. He's righteous and faithful. Do you trust him with your life? Do you trust him with your soul? With your health? With your very eternity? Do you trust that this king is all that you need for life and your soul's deepest satisfaction? Do you believe that every moment of your life is governed by the loving rule of the Lord Jesus Christ and that no matter what happens to you, that He will guide you safely into His sovereign, invincible kingdom? That changes, every, that changes absolutely everything, doesn't it? Why? How so? Because it means that no matter how you die or when you die, it is irrelevant. How you die and when you die is irrelevant. It's meaningless. COVID, cancer, car wreck, it doesn't matter. Why? Because the outcome is secure. The final chapter of our lives has already been written. And it's here in the text. It's here. Here it is. And the Bible is clear. When Christ returns, He will speak and He will gather the bits and crumbs of our worm-eaten corpses and He will raise us from the grave just as if we had never died in the first place. And we will reign with our Messiah and shine like the sun and the glory of His kingdom. And it will be and He will be everything we have been waiting for. And that right there is what Advent is all about. Letting the past remind us of the future. And that's the first riveting glimpse of the kingdom to come. Namely, the righteous king of the kingdom. Which brings us to the second riveting glimpse, number two, the renovated conditions of the kingdom. The renovated conditions of the kingdom. Because one of the things that makes Christ so glorious and beautiful is that he is not half a savior. 
who's only going to fix some things, but that he is a whole Savior who will fix everything when he comes. What I mean is, he is not just a Savior who redeems only our souls. He is a Savior who will redeem every single aspect of creation itself. And you see it in the text. And yet, I just want to warn you that what you're about to witness, you are going to be tempted to not believe. What you're about to see is one of those passages that you're just going to be sure this has to be symbolic. This has to be metaphorical. It can't mean what it seems to say. And yet I assure you that what you're about to see is literal and certifiably real. Look what Isaiah reveals about the conditions of the kingdom, verses 6 through 9. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat. And the young calf and the young lion and fattened cattle together. And a little boy will lead them. And the cow and the bear will graze together. Their their young will lie down. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play around the hole of the cobra and around the the hole of the viper. A wean child will stretch out his hand, but they will not harm, nor will they destroy in all of my holy mountain. Why? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. There it is. And I know what you're thinking. This, This can't be real. This can't be real. This, this, this has to be symbolic and metaphorical of something. It can't mean what it seems to say, to which I reply, can't it? Is it symbolic? Is it metaphorical? Because I'll just tell you, we have every reason biblically to take this absolutely literally. Look at verse 6. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and a young calf, and a young lion, and fattened cattle together, and a little boy will lead them. What on earth are we seeing? Well, it is on earth, and it is the future. And what this is, is the power of the king when he returns is so pervasive on the planet that his very presence reverses the effects of sin on the planet. In the kingdom, wolves and lambs will lay in the same field. Leopards and baby calves will lay down in the same barn. The predator, prey, distinction in the animal kingdom will no longer exist. All the savagery between animals will be over in the kingdom. Because you remember, don't you? After the flood, Genesis 9, God promised that there would be hostility between animals and people. And we take that totally serious because it's literal and it's real. And we should take that literal and serious because it is real. But this here in Isaiah 11 is just as real. This is the solution to the problem. Here we see the conditions of creation restored to what God originally intended them to be. Look what he says at the end of verse 6. Little kids, instead of playing with lizards and puppies, will play with wolves and lions because the king's presence on the earth overturns the curse and restores the planet to the harmony of Eden before the plague of sin entered the world. And that sounds crazy, but it's not. It's perfectly logical. In fact, Ezekiel chapter 36 predicts that one day God will restore Eden, the conditions of Eden to the planet. The first Adam ruined the planet with his sin, but the second Adam will repair the planet when he removes the sin. Look at verse 7. Cows and bears will graze in the same field. Their, Their young will lie down together. Lions will be tame. And instead of eating the ox, we'll eat straw like the ox. I'm not saying that's scientifically possible. I'm just saying that is historically inevitable. This is going to happen. Reminds me as a kid when I used to watch the show National Geographic. I don't know if you remember, that used to be a show. And I remember as a kid being horrified because they would show these gruesome, slow motion videos of animal brutality 
of gazelles and, and antelopes being ripped and torn apart by lions, and they would show this, and blood everywhere, carcasses strewn on the ground, and yet, and yet, when the king comes to take his throne, those days will be over, because his kingdom isn't just a spiritual kingdom, it is a kingdom that transforms every single aspect of creation, which sounds crazy only because we've never experienced it. We've only seen a fallen world. And yet this is exactly what creation was like before the plague of sin. But when the Messiah comes, he will reverse the curse and effects of sin and bring creation back to its paradise-like conditions. Chickens and foxes, cats and coyotes, even children and snakes will live in harmony. Look at verse 8. And a nursing child will play around the hole of the cobra. And around the hole of the viper, a weaned child will stretch out his hand. This is astonishing. Babies will play with snakes and cobras and they won't get hurt. They'll stick their hand in a viper's nest and they will be fine. Why? Why? How is this possible? I mean, this sounds like science fiction. It is not science fiction. It is biblical prediction. And verse 9, verse 9 gives the reason, the explanation for how this is even possible. Look at the text. And they will not harm, nor will they destroy in all of my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. Notice that it's God himself who speaks in verse 9. And the reason he gives for why Vipers are nice, and why lions don't bite is because the earth will be filled with the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. This was his design for the planet from the very beginning. Mankind was to multiply and fill the earth with the knowledge and the glory of Yahweh. But Adam blew up the plan. And made the world what it is today. Which is why we needed a second Adam to come. And when he comes, he will lift the curse and break the spell at every level of creation. Isn't isn't this exactly what the Apostle Paul predicted in Romans chapter 8? Isn't this what he anticipates? Calls us to anticipate that all of creation groans as it waits for the final stage of redemption. That the creation subjected to futility will be set free from its corruption at the end of the age, which is exactly what we're seeing every single December. We just didn't know that the lyrics were inspired by the prophet Isaiah. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Let heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains, repeat the sounding joy. Notice, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. And you know how it ends. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. And the wonders of his love. The question is, do you know the wonders of his love this morning. Do you know the wonders of his love? Have you trusted in the high king, the root of Jesse? Have you yielded by faith to the great high king, Jesus Christ? That's what I'm asking you. Have you done so? Because laid in a manger, he will sit on a throne. Died on a cross, he will bear a kingly crown. Born in a barn, he will reign in a kingdom. 
And if you don't know the great king, if you don't know him, he offers to you right now through his death, not merely forgiveness of sins, but a place in his kingdom in which he will rule with the glory of a thousand sons. And he will make all things be the way they ought to be because that is exactly what Advent reminds us to remember. Let's pray. O Lord, awaken our senses. Make our taste buds alert. Open our eyes. Unstop our ears. Unburden wearied hearts conflicted and distracted this morning. Help us, Lord, to see your glory. We have to see this. We have to see this. So many obstructions, so many spiritual cataracts in our spiritual eyes prevent us from seeing the glory that we need to see. We need you, O Christ, to use your word to peel off the layers, the calluses of our spiritual sight. O Christ, Come to this people. Come to this people. And work in their lives. And help them to trust. Give them strength to trust. We are wearied. It is hard for us to take you at your word. Help us to do so. Raise the temperature of our affections to you. Make us bold heralds and proclaimers of the gospel. The full gospel that includes a coming reign. In a kingdom in which you will make all things right. We need you, O Christ. I pray that you would help us this Christmas to not take it for granted, to not spoil the season, O Lord, but that we would be alert and we would be attentive and we would see people who don't have you in our neighborhoods, nice, moral, kind people who we enjoy and we like, but they don't know you and your wrath abides on them. Help us to proclaim the message of the Savior to come who has come and who will come again. O King Jesus, root and offspring of David, come to us.